Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. All right, we're reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. We'll start in verse 13 and head all the way down towards the end of the chapter. Follow me, if you would, as I read from the New King James Version. Matthew 16, verse 13 says... That when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, or others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of God for the people of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, Father, you you know that my desire today is to be used by you, Um, Lord, not to impress, not to perform, but to be used by you to impart something from your throne. And so, Jesus, uh, right now I just simply submit myself and surrender myself to you. I surrender all my preparation, all my ideas, all my all my confidence and all my fear, and I just put it at your feet, and I ask that you'd fill me with your spirit so that you could use me for your purpose. We ask that you would give us ears to hear, not what Andrew has to say, but Holy Spirit, as you're speaking, give us ears to hear what you're saying to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we look this morning at Christology, we are focusing on this central question. You might want to write this at the top of your notes. The question is simply, who was Jesus Christ? Who was Jesus Christ? This is not a teaching again to establish that he was. This is a question to establish who 
he was. Now, this question, who was Jesus Christ, as we see here in our text this morning, it's a question that dates back even 2,000 years to the time of Jesus in Caesarea Philippi, as Jesus is asking his disciples the same thing. Timeless truth, timeless truth here, asking this question. Now, at this time in Matthew 16, we need to understand this, that Jesus' fame has gone out. Jesus is quite the popular preacher. He's quite the well-known healer. Um, if in this day and age Jesus had a social media account, he would be verified for sure. And he would have a large crowd following him, liking every picture. I'm sure the disciples would have managed it too. I don't see Jesus taking selfies or anything. So, Nonetheless, his fame has gone out at this point. And with, listen to this, this is really important, with the growing popularity of Jesus' ministry has come a great variety of opinions regarding his identity. Again, I'll say that the great popularity of his ministry, it brought with it a great variety of opinions regarding his identity. So Jesus goes, disciples, who do men say that I am? In other words, what's the general consensus? As my fame is going out, what do people think about me? Their response, did you see it there? Some say John the Baptist, verse 14. Some Elijah. Some Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, this is an interesting answer to this question. Because each of these characters that the disciples name that sort of represent what the people were thinking about Jesus, they're not totally off. There's a sense in which many people could have understood Jesus to be one of these answers. Let's just look at this, for example. They start with, who's the first one? John the Baptist, which isn't Jesus. It's actually the cousin of Jesus. Nobody in here likes to be confused with their cousin, okay? And Jesus here is confused with his cousin, John the Baptist. Now, why would they think that he's John the Baptist? Well, just like John the Baptist, everywhere Jesus went, he was preaching repentance, he was calling from repentance from the nations. What's the next one? Maybe not John the Baptist, but what about Elijah? Elijah. We know that there was going to be one coming in the spirit of Elijah. And everywhere Jesus went, like Elijah, he was doing what Elijah did, which is work miracles. Raise the dead. Heal the sick. Maybe he's Elijah. Or what about, this is an interesting one, Jeremiah. I think he's Jeremiah. Why is that? Well, Remember the story where Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. He says, like a mother hen wants to gather her chicks to herself. That, that's how Jesus felt about Israel. God wanting to gather his people. And Jesus weeping, broken over their state, broken over their rejection of God. It resembles Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. And then lastly, one of the prophets. I mean, this is kind of an easy one, right? It's sort of easy to assume that Jesus was one of the prophets because of the, the manner in which Jesus would speak, the great authority with which he would speak like a prophet. But today, there's world religions like Islam, for example, that simply sees Jesus in this light. He was just another prophet. Now, though these are not completely off, here is the mistake with these conclusions about Jesus. They are definitions that are concluding the whole of Jesus based upon a part. They're concluding the whole of Jesus based upon a piece. They're taking a portion of Jesus and making it the whole. You ever had someone do that, by the way, about you? Isn't that the worst? And it's usually, by the way, people at a distance. People who don't really know you. And maybe they see something you've done. 
And that peace becomes your reputation. That ever happened to anybody? Just me? Awesome. I'm the only person who gets a bad reputation. God bless you guys, all right? That's what is happening here with Jesus. They're taking a piece of the puzzle, and that's usually what happens, except for the people who really know you, right? The people who know you up close and personal, they know that you're more than your mistakes. They know that you're more than even your strengths. They know you for who you are in truth. And that's unfortunately, was the case in Jesus' day. Many people, they didn't have the full idea of who Jesus was, just a portion based on a piece. And I would submit to you today that the same is true today. Many conclusions about Jesus today are based on parts of him and not the whole. Let, let's back up for a second. Just like in that time, Jesus' fame has gone out, even in our day. It's simple to submit that Jesus Christ is the most famous figure in the history of the world. I mean, right now in your mind, try to think about, apart from him, the most famous person that you could ever imagine, who's been enshrined, who's been in some ways worshipped, whether they're pop figures or rock stars or actors or actresses or former emperors or kings. None of them compare to Jesus. Even Napoleon Bonaparte said that. No one compares to Jesus. I love the way that Mark Driscoll and Gary Brashears described this in another recommended book, Vintage Jesus. I would say recommended with caution. I would just say that. But in Mark Driscoll and Gary Brashears' book, Vintage Jesus, I love the way they explain it. They say it this way. At first glance, Jesus' resume is rather simple. 2,000 years ago, he's born to a teenage virgin woman into a working class family. He spent the first roughly 30 years of his life as a carpenter swinging a hammer in relative obscurity. That is up until 30 years old when he began his public ministry, spending three years teaching, preaching, healing the sick, performing miracles, and developing his ragtag 12 disciples. He never traveled more than a few hundred miles from his home. He never held a political office, never wrote a book, never married, never attended college, never even visited a big city. He died both homeless and poor. Nevertheless, Jesus is the most famous person in all of human history. More songs have been sung to him, artwork created of him, and books written about him than anyone who has ever lived. In fact, Jesus looms, listen to this, so large over human history that we actually measure time by him. Our calendar is divided into the years before and after his birth, noted as B.C., for Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, meaning in the year of our Lord. No army, nation, or person has changed human history to the degree that Jesus has. You cannot ignore not only his existence, that's one thing, but the reason why you cannot ignore his existence is because you cannot ignore the magnitude of his impact on history. Even non-believers, even secular historians like the late, great, famous H.G. Wells said, I'm not a believer, H.G. Wells said, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth, look at this, is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. And just like the fame of Jesus in his day, today, there are also no shortage of opinions regarding his identity. The most famous character ever, and maybe also the most debated and disagreed on character 
ever. And let's be honest, we live in the day and age of polarizing people. I'm not going to say any names because you know most of them, okay? I don't need to. We live in a day and age where it's either for or against, but no one has drawn haters and lovers, worshipers and despisers, receivers and rejecters like Jesus. No one. It's undeniable. There's such a variety today of opinions regarding it. Uh, To me, it's one of the easiest things to explain away the the common moniker, which is this idea that, hey, don't all religions teach the same thing? That's kind of what you you hear today. At the end of the day, every religion is just a different perspective or path to God. Now, to the person who says, don't all religions teach the same thing about Jesus? A, A simple response can be this, not about Jesus, they don't. Not about Jesus. If there's one thing that sets religions apart and distinguishes them from each other, it's who was Jesus. But let me give you some examples. So today, uh, if a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door and you say, hey, what do you believe about Jesus? They may or may not give you a straight answer, but hopefully you get to what they believe, what the Watchtower Society tells them to believe. And that is that Jesus was a created being. And he is actually the Archangel Michael. Mormonism, another common Uh, offshoot of the Christian faith, would say that he's not eternal God, but listen, he's a polygamous man who was the half-brother of Lucifer and became one of many gods. That's what Mormonism teaches. So Christian theology teaches that in Christ God became a man. Mormonism teaches that in Christ man became a god. Mormonism. You also have the modern New Age movement. If you ask a New Ager, someone like Oprah or Deepak Chopra would say, and you say, hey, what do you think about Jesus? You'll get a lot of opinions, but many of them will be congruent with the teachings of Deepak Chopra, who said, I see Christ as a state of consciousness that we can all aspire to. You go ahead and visit the world religions. Let's start with Baha'i. Baha'i would say that Jesus is a manifestation of God, or perhaps a prophet of God, but he's inferior to Muhammad and Buhayla. Buddhism would teach that Jesus is not God, but he's an enlightened man, much like Buddha. Hinduism would teach you that you, in in Hinduism, you'll find a lot of differing views within within it. Um, But the general answer will be Jesus Christ is not God, but he's an enlightened man like Krishna. That that would be the idea. Uh, If he is God, if they get there, he is one one of more than a million gods. So he's certainly not the only God. He's not exclusive or special, okay? Uh, And then we'll go to Islam, which would teach that Jesus is not God, that he is merely a man, and that he is a prophet. But he is a prophet who's lesser than the prophet Muhammad. And then let's just start with the, let's just end rather, with the common cultural view, the modern secular view that might not, maybe you're here today, you go, I don't have a world religion, or I'm not a part of an offshoot cult, I, I don't really, but here's where most people kind of like question on the street, this is probably the most common answer you'll get. Jesus is a good man, or a good teacher, or a wise healer, or a political revolutionary, but he's not God-man. Maybe the best man who ever lived, but not God. Jesus says, so what do people think about me? He could ask the question today. The disciples only had four answers, right? We could be like, well, where do you want me to start, Jesus? Like, there's, a, there's a different building for a different view. There's such a variety there, but I want you to notice the next question that Jesus asks. But who do you say that I am? Did you know that you are required to answer that question? And if you're not answering that question, you're answering that question. You see, you can't ignore his impact. And certainly as Christians, this is a wise question for us to answer. 
but we're followers of Jesus, right? So Jesus is pressing into the personal answer. And even today, you might be able to sit here and go, I know what everybody believes about Jesus. I even know what Christians believe about Jesus. But here's the question, what do you believe about Jesus? I mean, sincerely, who is he to you? You know what I found when it comes to this question? I find that people are often off to answering this by being too close or being too far away. Some of you, you're too far away. You've never looked in to Jesus enough to answer this question. So I love the way that Bill Schott shared it last Thursday. He said, okay, if you're going to be a non-believer in Jesus, at least be an intelligent one. At least you, you, you owe it to the impact Jesus made on history to investigate whether or not he, said he is who he said he was. So if you're going to be a non-believer, if you're not going to be a Christian, at least own it. Know why you're not that. So some of us, that's where we are. We're distant, and we've got to come a little closer and just kind of look into this person of Jesus. Now, on the other hand, there's some of us, we're too close to see Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. I don't mean you're too close to Jesus. You're too close to the things of Jesus. You're too close to the church world, the cultural world. So what you've never done is you've never truly stepped back and said, who is he? Who is he not to my parents? Who is he not to my grandparents? Who is he not to Andrew? Who is he not to Solus? Who is Jesus to me? So it, it, there's this proximity that's required here. We've got to come close. And notice it's the ones who are closest to Jesus here, his disciples. Those who have that great perspective that Jesus turns to and goes, what about you? I know you guys aren't a bunch of just fans following me on Instagram. Come on, how many of us, we think we know someone through their social media? That's, that's, not, that's a fake you. That's a filtered you, literally, okay? And Jesus looks at his disciples, he goes, I know you guys aren't like everyone else. You've walked with me. You've listened to my teaching. You've watched me. Everywhere I've gone for the past few years, you've been with me. What do you think about me, right? That perfect proximity to Jesus. And let's look at two of their answers and two of Jesus' answers. As, as we ask this question, who do you say that he is? That's the question he asked his disciples. Notice the first response. Peter says, you see it there in verse 17? Blessed are you, oh sorry, excuse me, verse, what is it? 16. Peter says, you are, number one, the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, um, maybe contrary to popular thought, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Christ, I just want, no, that doesn't happen, Okay. Christ is not the name of Jesus as much as it's the title, a descriptive title that's so true about Jesus that it goes everywhere with his name. So all throughout the Bible you have Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. And here Peter is exclaiming not just uh, that he's Jesus, but he's Jesus the Christ. Now the word Christ, so it comes, it's an English derivative of the Greek word Christos, which is the Greek equivalent, we're going back, okay, two generations of language here, of the, the Hebrew Mashiach, which means anointed ones. Anybody know what word we get from Mashiach? Messiah, Messiah. So a Mashiach or a Christos was an anointed one. And let me say this. There were many, throughout history, many anointed ones. There's a sense in which Jesus wasn't the only Christos. There's been many anointed ones. In fact, all throughout the Old Testament, you see anointed ones, specifically being prophets, priests, and kings. An anointed one is someone who's set apart, chosen by God for a specific divine task. And the anointing would come through the symbolism of, of smearing oil, symbolic of the anointing and the, and the power of the Holy Spirit on that individual. It's something we should pray for today. You, you shouldn't go into your work without, by the way, some anointing. Amen? You shouldn't go about your Christian life in your own strength. We need the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Anybody with me? We need God's anointing. 
And there's been plenty of anointed ones, specifically in Israel's history. They would anoint prophets who were chosen to speak God's word, priests who were chosen to represent the people to God, and kings who were representatives supposed to be of God to lead the people in the ways of God. Now, let's establish something. First and foremost, Jesus is all three of these things, which is awesome. Jesus is the great prophet. He's a greater prophet even than Moses, we would say. Time to time, Jesus would say, you have heard it said by Moses, but I say to you. He wouldn't supersede Moses' words, but he would bring them to greater fulfillment and say, here's the heart of what Moses was saying. Is Jesus a priest? Does Jesus mediate between us and God? He sure does. Thank God for Jesus who is our great high priest. The Bible says he's passed through the heavens, the son of God. And this is a great high priest. This is not a high priest who doesn't understand the weaknesses that we walk through. He's a high priest who knows what we feel. He's also, he's a king. We'll get there in a second, but he's certainly a king. He's the king of kings. But I want to point something out. Peter does not say about Jesus, Jesus, you are an anointed one. You're just like a prophet, you're just like a priest, you're just like a king. There's a very key article there, and what is it? The. You are not just a Christ, you are the Christ. Every Jew in that time knew exactly what Peter was saying. Jesus, you're not just one of the anointed ones, you are the anointed one. You are God's promised and chosen one. You can write it down this way. As Jesus, the anointed one, he is the long-awaited and promised Messiah of Israel. The anointed one. Jesus, you're the chosen one. And I want to uh, specify that this was a promise given to Israel for the whole world. Let's understand this. Last week, we looked all at the mess that man created. Placed in this world, made in God's image, designed for a purpose to steward this creation and to make it beautiful, to make it enjoyable to the glory of God. And we saw that man went wrong when we began to cut ourselves off from God. This is where everything goes wrong in our life. When we try to be our own God, we try to do it ourselves. We say, God, you stand over there. I'm going to try to do this on my own. Just stay. I got this. I got this. And God knows, just like if my son Judah were to say, hey, Dad, can I drive your car? I'd be like, no. Dad, you don't love me. Yes, I do, okay? And I know that that is, listen, you're going to wreck yourself if you do that. And God knows the same for us, that when we try to be independent and get behind the wheel of our lives, we get wrecked <laughs> in every stretch of the imagination. And that's what happened to humanity. We fell. Now, at the moment of that fall, here's how gracious God is. Despite how wrong we made things and we continue to make things, here's the message of the Bible. If you get nothing out of today, than this, it's worth it. God is always more gracious than we expected him to be. God has forgiven you more than you thought he did. God loves you more than you think he could. God is always pursuing you despite how far you've run from him. Whenever we turn around, this seems to be it. And second, we always turn around, we just expect God to have that, that rod of judgment ready to strike us. God is always there with open arms looking to embrace us. This is God. And so we see that displayed, even as Adam and Eve fall, and the serpent tricks them and deceives them, God makes a promise, a prophecy, a messianic prophecy. And he says this, that I will put enmity, speaking to the serpent, between you and the woman, and I will, between your seed and her seed, which, which is interesting, her seed, that's not typically how biology works, we won't get into that this morning, some children here, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What, what a great promise that Jesus is making. 
or sorry, God is making to Adam and Eve. Listen, this serpent, he might have bitten humanity. He might have deceived humanity. All things might have gone wrong, but I'm going to raise up someone. I'm going to bring a hero into the story. The hero is going to come into the story, and he is going to heel stomp the devil. He's going to crush him. He's going to curb stomp that serpent, okay? And now in the process, we get the imagery, right? As the Savior, as this hero is going to bruise, and he's going to rather crush the head of the serpent, what's going to happen to his heel? He's going to be wounded in the process. It's like when someone has to smack a mosquito on your face. It's like unnecessary evil, you know. It's like, all right, it's dead, you know. Such an understatement. And uh, I don't ever want to bring irreverence to the cross of Christ and what was accomplished there. But, but here's this promise. Now, this is all we have, by the way. We don't have cross. Uh, we, we don't have Jesus. We don't have Messiah. This is the early stages of what would d- develop all throughout the, the Old Testament of God continuing to, to uh, reveal and reinforce this promise. Humans have messed things up, but God will make things right. Is that not the message of our lives, okay? Humans mess things up, but God is so good that instead of just kicking us, you know, out the door and and brushing us under the rug, he faithfully pursues us, and this promise develops. It goes from from Adam, and it goes to Abraham. God says, Abraham, through your seed, I'm going to choose this nation. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. It goes from from even Abraham to Moses, that God was going to raise up a prophet. We see it in Isaiah, almost every book of the Old Testament. We see these, these hints at this hero who was going to come. David, when David was trying to build a kingdom for himself, God said, I got something much better in mind, David. I'm going to build my own kingdom through your line. I'm going to bring a king through your lineage who will establish a kingdom that will never end. He will forever rule. And then you follow the kings in David's line and you get kind of hopeless, right? And that is until Jesus shows up. And this promise is given to this young woman, this virgin Mary, and this promise is given that this child that you're going to bear, he's going to establish an everlasting kingdom. So we get the idea here? As the disciples, listen, spent time with Jesus... They they couldn't simply assume this is just some good teacher. Let me tell you, this is going to be the same for you. If you you take that step close to Jesus or you take that step back and look at Jesus, you cannot walk away from a true discovery of Jesus and just say, he's a pretty good guy. He's pretty good at speaking. He's pretty good at healing. You walk away in awe saying, this is a hero right here. This is a savior. This is a Messiah. This is a chosen one. There's no one like this Jesus. Who is this Jesus? He's the Christ. And the disciples, as they spent time with him, uh, their, their understanding developed. They go, he's not just a good teacher. He's not just our rabbi. Peter says, and Jesus says, it's by the Spirit. It's by not his flesh and blood. But God reveals to Peter, you're the Christ, Jesus. Now, just a quick word about this. I want to say that this, by the way, when you discover this, you're liberated. You're set free. When you discover that Jesus is the hero, you don't have to waste your life trying to be. You get to be who God created you to be, dependent on him as the hero. There's this great exchange that Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, has with some religious teachers. They want to know, what's up with this guy? He's, he dresses funny. He, he eats funny. He's, he's, he's pretty much a hipster, this guy. What is this guy? He's funny, dresses funny. I guess that's a hipster. But they go... What are you? What's the deal? And they say to him, 
Who are you? That's what they asked John the Baptist prior to Jesus' arrival on the scene. This is just a couple, couple of years before Jesus comes out with his ministry. And they go, who, who are you, John the Baptist? John the Baptist answers this question incredibly. He says this. He says that he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Where in your life do you need to say this? Where are you trying to be the Messiah? Where are you trying to be the hero? Now, don't get me wrong. Dad, be hero. <laughs> You're like, I'm just going to be a slumpy dad now. You know, I'm Andrew said, I'm not the hero, so I'm going to eat nachos today and lay on the couch. No, that's obviously me. No, no, the idea here is you let Jesus be who he is in your life first and foremost. And that's not going to lead you to apathy. That's going to lead you to passion. So, so this incredible response by John, I am not the Christ. I'm just someone sent to point to the Christ. That's who we are. We're not here to absorb the light. We're here to reflect the light to Jesus in everything and with everything that we do. Jesus is the Christ. But it was more than that, wasn't it? Of course, we see Peter acknowledged, Jesus, you're the Christ, but there's a comma there. You are the Christ. Secondly, what does he say? The Son of the living God. The Son of the living God. This is unique. Uh, it's unique because notice verse 13. When Jesus asked the question, notice the identity he ascribed to himself. He says, who do men say that I, the Son of what? The Son of Man am. So he poses the question, hey guys, who am I? He affirms, I'm the son of man, okay? You know, Mary's my mom, okay? Who am I? And they say, you're the son of God. It's interesting. Two realities at work here. Jesus, the son of man, who is also the son of God. So which is it? Is he the son of man, humanity? Or is he the son of God, divinity? And the answer is yes. Correct. He is the son of man, humanity, who is the son of God, divinity. Notice these two realities at work here. You're the son of the living God. And some people say, well, you know, all throughout the Bible, there's people described as sons or children of God. No one apart from Jesus is the son of the living God. The son of the living God. The son of the living God. I'm so thankful that I am a son of God. Anybody else? I am a child of God. No one in here can say, I am the son of God. It's like, that's, that's not how that works, okay? You're a son of God. Jesus is the son of the living God. And here's how we would understand the mystery of this almost duality. It's that Jesus Christ is also the incarnate son of the living God. This is fundamental to understanding who Jesus is. He is the incarnate son of the living God. Is Jesus God or is Jesus a man? The answer again is yes. The scripture teaches it this way. A great explanation of Jesus being the incarnate son of the living God. Fully God. Fully man. A great explanation of this is 1 Timothy 3.16, which says that without controversy or without question, great is the mystery of godliness. All right? By the way, this is a mystery. It's like the Trinity. A couple weeks ago, we, we said this quote by Augustine. Augustine said that to try to explain the Trinity or to deny the Trinity is to lose your soul, but to try to explain it is to lose your mind. And there's a sense in which you get some mystery here. Great is the mystery but it's true nonetheless. Do we know that God could be who he is despite our ability to fit him into our brains? Do we know that God can still be who he is despite our ability to fit him into our brains? Yet two people, yeah, he can, right? You can talk to me, all right? You're not going to get kicked out. It's okay, right? Check out this verse. Great is the ministry. God was, notice this, manifested in the flesh. In other words, revealed 
in the flesh. That's who Jesus was. Jesus was God manifested in the flesh. Flesh, man, God, divine. Now, to go forward, we need to go back a bit. I think the place we need to start with this is Jesus' self-proclaimed pre-existence. Okay, we're going in deep here. All right, stick with me here. All right? Deep dive. Put on your scuba gear. All right? That was so corny. Okay, um, pre-existence. The idea of Jesus' pre-existence, his self-affirmed, scripturally affirmed pre-existence is the idea, listen, that Jesus, the Jesus of history, the Bible teaches that he did not come into existence at his birth, but he pre-existed his life on earth. You have verses like John 8, 58, where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. How do you do that? Try that one. Try, say, try this. Before Abraham Lincoln was. I, I am. I was. It's like, you were. You were here. How old are you? Over 200 years old. That's the first person ever. Okay, check this out. Next, John 17, Jesus says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself. Look at the preexistence. And with the glory with I, which, which I had with you before the world does. So now this is going back farther. So I predate my birth. I predate Abraham. And now Jesus says, I predate everything that is. Before Abraham was, I am. The Bible teaches that Jesus, he's the firstborn over all creation, that all things were actually made by him and through him. He's before all things. In fact, if you look at the Old Testament, you'll even see these appearances. You ever seen these appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament? I don't have it up there. This is a little extra credit. But they're called Christophanies any, or Theophanies. Any appearance of God in the flesh or in the form of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. You have a man with uh, Daniel's homies, uh, Meshach, Ben, the VeggieTales guys. Those guys. <laughs> he, there's a man appearing. So that's Jesus appearing. Now, so, so here's the idea. His preexistence. Uh, Jesus would say things like this, right? John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven. Like, you haven't heard that in a sermon, have you? Like, usually it's, do you want to go to heaven? Not like, hey guys, sorry, I'm late. I just came from heaven. Um, a lot of traffic. <laughs> um, all right. So I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 16, same thing. I came from the Father and have come into the world. I've come into the world, we know in the last verse, from heaven. Now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Now this brings up this question. In Jesus' pre-existence, how is it that he came into the world? And that's this world, incarnation. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is not a word explicitly used in Scripture. It comes from a Latin word that we see taught in Scripture. Uh, and the incarnation, there's a, some great passages on the incarnation, some great passages. On the, read the New Testament, and you'll find a lot about the divinity of Jesus. But obviously the go-to is John 1, isn't it? In the beginning, this is hearkening back to Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and you have this other character there at creation that he calls the logos, the word, the truth. It says, in the beginning was the Word, John 1, 1, and the Word was with God, so we see he's distinct from the Father, but he also is God. Now, many cults today have actually changed the original language of the Greek and have inserted an article there to say that he is a God, which if you ask any entry-level Greek scholar, they will say that does not hold up in Greek studies. They try to create Jesus as someone who became a man rather than God, or rather became a God rather than God became a man. And all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. That sounds a lot like God to me. A lot like God. Then we see the incarnation in verse 14, where John says, This word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. 
And this is Exodus 34. This is tabernacle. This is the glory of God language. And we beheld his glory, just as Moses did. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, the incarnate Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. Incarnation. Let me help you out here for a second. So incarnation, a Latin word, uh, carne, incarne. Hopefully today when you get some Mexican food, you get some carne asada tacos. Let's close in prayer, actually. Just kidding. All right. Carne asada tacos. All right. Is that the spirit or my stomach? I don't, okay, it's my stomach. So carne asada, uh, it's meat. The idea here is God, he didn't become a carne asada taco. That's not my theology. But God became meat. God put on meat. He became meat. And look at this. And we beheld his glory. He dwelt among us. The word dwelt there is so unique. In, in Greek, it has to do with the tabernacle. It literally means he tabernacled among us. Just like God's uh, very presence was manifested in the tent of the tabernacle that would go with the people. They would live around the tent of God. And on the outside, it just looked like any old tent. But on the inside, it was the very presence of God. That's Jesus. There was nothing on the outside to draw us to him, was there? The Bible says he had no form of comeliness to him. There's nothing like, oh, right? When the, when the Roman soldiers came to take him for crucifixion, they weren't like, oh, it's the one floating over there. That's Jesus. There he is. See with the halo? He looks like all the pictures of him right there. No. Judas kissed him. To what? Identify him. He was, he was a man. But on the inside, the glory of God. The disciples in Matthew 17, they get a great vision of the glory of God as Jesus is transfigured before him from the inside out. Jesus is the incarnate son of the living God. In theology, I want you to understand that this is called the hypostatic union. I got some nice words for you to show off today, okay? Hypostatic union. It sounds like a new vacuum that's going to hit the market later, okay? Dyson's newest model. This is the hypostatic union, all right? Um, I'm a parent, that's why I said that. Okay, hypostatic union. Now, the idea of the hypostatic union, it speaks of the union of Jesus' two distinct natures in one. And the idea of the hypostatic union is that Jesus is not, let's establish something, Jesus is not 100% God and 0% man. People who teach that. He wasn't really a man, he was just like a, a you know, like Princess Leia in Star Wars, just like a projection of God, you know? And that's, that's kind of the idea. No, he's not 100% God and 0% man, nor is he what Arianism teaches in many cults today, that he was 100% man and 0% God. Nor is he what a lot of Christians believe today, that he was... 50% man, like half man, half God. Like me, half man, half amazing. You know, I kind of got the same thing going. That's probably what you think, right? But Jesus, according to the hypostatic union, it's this doctrine that believes that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. I don't get it. It's a mystery. Can we establish that? 100% God, 100% man. Fully God, fully man. God became a man. Now, here's what Philippians says. This is a, another great verse about this. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider, he was in the form of God, he was God, and the word there, beings, doesn't just speak of like existence, it speaks of shape and, and, and essence, he was in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. Now, this is key, the word no reputation there in the Greek is kenosis, it means to empty. There are some false doctrines today that teach that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity and became a human being who was not God any 
more. But if that could happen, Jesus would never have been God. God cannot cease to be God. <laughs> That's what makes him God. Okay? That's what makes it good news. But, but the Bible teaches he, there was an emptying that occurred. What was the emptying? The emptying was, was, it's an interesting thing. It's like this subtraction of his divine, almost full expression through the addition of humanity. He, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a bondservant, by becoming a man. God putting on meat, still being fully God and fully man. And we know that this mystery was made possible through the virgin birth. The virgin birth. This is not, by the way, just like, oh, that's like a thing we believe, I think, right? It's kind of important. This is central to who Jesus was. This was a prophecy about the Messiah, right? Who We now see, by the way, don't you love this? God promised he sent a Messiah. Who did he send? He sent himself. I love that. He's like, it's me. I'm here, right? I love that. He could have sent, hey, you go, go. Be, but he's like, no, I'll go. That's beautiful. I'll, think about this for a second. Think about it like this, like you see an anthill. Little, cute little ants. And, I guess, and you see a river coming. And you're like, they're going to drown. I don't know if ants can swim. They seem to. When I try to kill them, they don't die in the water. But here comes, you go, I got to save them. So, what are you going to do? Hey! You're not going to yell at them. Now imagine if you became an ant. Guys. This is a horrible illustration. Guys. There's a, there's a river coming. We're not going to outrun it. Now I'm going to die too. No, right? Now, or, or whatever other creature that you think is humble for you to become. A slug, maybe. That's even worse. Can I say something? No, us becoming some other creature, nothing compares to God becoming a man. What you think about that stupid illustration? What you think about that thought? Think about God leaving his throne and crying in a manger. Think about, the, think about the creator of the world being vulnerable enough to be a child through, and this is, again, through the virgin birth. We know the prophecy in Isaiah, it says this, that the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, Isaiah 7, 14, this messianic promise, and shall, you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, this is, this is God with us. This is God with us. Do you know a God that's with you this close? Can I tell you something? A lot of us, we pray for God to be close. God cannot come any closer than he is to you. God has come closer than you could ever want him to through the person of Jesus. I love the way the message version says it. It says that the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. I love that. God became our next door neighbor. That guy, hey, good morning. That, that's what he did. He was a carpenter. He lived in history. And it was through a virgin. The virgin birth. This is what the angel said to Mary. He said in Matthew 1.18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Notice this. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together... Okay, She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Before they came together, this is the immaculate conception. The, this is not like Abraham and Sarah. Super, this is the immaculate conception. What happens here? As Jesus is born of a woman, this is huge. He comes into this race of humanity. But being conceived of the Holy Spirit, he's the Son of God the Father. Fully God. 
fully man. You can think of it this way, that Jesus had two sides of the family. He had his mother's side, <laughs> and we all do, and we have our father's side. And they both represent two worlds apart, don't they? And we get them together. Isn't that fun? All right? His mother's side. And his, so think about Jesus. Think about, think about how tough this must have been for Jesus. Jesus, how old are you? Uh, well, on my mother's side, I'm 12. On my father's side, I'm, I'm eternal. All right, Jesus, we're going to go to school now. You want to come, you know? But start to explore this with. On his mother's side, think about Jesus. On his mother's side, he got hungry. On his father's side, he fed a multitude with a few fish and bread. On his mother's side, he got thirsty. On his father's side, he's the living water. On his mother's side, he got tired. I love this great verse in Mark. It shows the humanity of Jesus. He's passed out siestying. That's a word. In the boat. Napping. The disciples are freaking out. On his mother's side, he got tired. He slept. On his father's side, he wakes up and commanded the storm to cease. On his mother's side, he learned obedience, Hebrews tell us. On his father's side, he knows all things. On his mother's side, he had no earthly possessions and nowhere to lay his head. On his father's side, he owns it all. Heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. Listen, on, the, on his mother's side, he died on a cross. On his father's side, he rose from the grave. This is Jesus. Fully God, fully man. Hypostatic union. Let's, let's wrap up here with the, with the next thing that Jesus says. Now, at this point, the disciples are geeking. They're like, first of all, Peter got an answer right. Yeah, Peter. You just picture the chalkboard. All wrong, tally, one. We get to do a tally for Peter. One tally, right answer. And now they're amped. And Jesus is like, you, you nailed it, Peter. This is the flat flesh of mud. The Father gave you that insight. You're like, Peter's like, oh, no. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus goes, Peter, you're right. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Peter's like, yeah. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. And don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. What? What? Sorry, I thought you said not to tell me that you're the Messiah. Jesus. Yeah. Um, and in a few days, I'm going to explain to you this a little bit more, but I want you to understand that I'm going to be killed. They missed this part, and be raised up. They didn't even pay attention to that. And right now, Peter's going, no, Jesus, that's not a part of my plan. You ever had that conversation with God? No, Jesus. You're, you're the king, right? And come on, we know this. You read the Bible. This is, this is still today why many, most, I should say, of the Jews throughout history have rejected Jesus as Messiah. Because you didn't fulfill the messianic expectations I had for you. I wanted you to be a political savior. I wanted you to come in and let me and affirm what I feel. They're bad, we're good, be on our side. Rather than all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we all need God to rescue us. And so even after Jesus rises from the dead, the disciples are going, oh, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're constantly missing the mark. Because Jesus did not come to be an earthly savior. He came to be an eternal savior. 
I mean, come on, in the disciples' eyes, what king gives his life to establish his kingdom? You ever heard of a king like this? I mean, in our, even in our non-kingdom, non-monarchical, democratic society, even our own you know, elected politicians don't establish their kingdoms that way. How do we establish our kingdom? We kick over the opponent. How, I want you to vote for me, so I'm going to trash that person as much as possible. That's, that's still today. That's how we all tend to get by in life. We get ahead by stepping over people. But what kind of kingdom is this? A king that's going to establish his kingdom not by taking but by giving. Not by force but by the strongest force in the world, the force of God's love. I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to establish my kingdom that way. I'm not going to to point at people and make them bow. I'm going to draw them in through my love displayed on a cross. Do you know God that way? Do you know a God that's not pointing at you saying you better be good? You better be obedient. You better join my team. You better be a Christian. That's not the God of the Bible. The Bible says that it's the goodness of God that leads a man to repentance. That's a relationship with God, and that's what Jesus came to be. He is the Messiah who's God himself, who's come not only to be the Savior for Israel, but the Savior of the whole world, the sinless Savior of the whole world. Notice this, the sinless Savior. This, by the way, if, as the disciples start to go back in, in, in a retro mindset, um, Jesus is talking about his crucifixion. They get it wrong this time. Peter's all amped up. No, it's not going to happen to you, Lord. And you kind of see him, it's like he got the right answer. So now he has the confidence to, like, speak again. All right, here comes the Father again. You're not going to die on the cross, Lord. Like, if you only knew what he was saying. Like, right now he's in heaven. Like, I really shouldn't have said that, you know. The whole cross thing turned out to be a pretty essential event. Um, but Jesus goes, get behind me, Satan. Now Jesus sees that the enemy is using Peter to keep Jesus from his mission. You look at the life of Jesus. This was the central focus of Jesus' mission. How many times did Jesus say things like this? The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What about probably the most familiar? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom, a payment for many. I love 1 Timothy 1.5 says it this way. I'm just giving you some verses that this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom Paul says, I am chief. This is why he came. Um, Jesus came to do for us as people what we could never, ever do for ourselves. No matter how much you try, we fall short. We not only fall short in sin, we fall short in our attempts at righteousness. We fall short. We're separate from God. And the message of Scripture is the only way that man could be right with God is if man atones for his sin. But how can I atone for my own sin? How can I do that? The only way a man could atone for his sin is if that man was sinless. As a picture of the Lamb of God in the Old Testament, he could take on the sins. The sins could be transferred to him, and that's the picture you get in Jesus. Did you know that? See, through Adam, the Bible teaches that we have received what's called imputed sin nature. Whether or not you like it, it's been, it's been credited to your and my account, and it's a deficit. Sinful. Jesus comes into the world representing man, but representing God, and he doesn't sin at all. Perfect life. Righteousness. He lived and fulfilled righteousness. Fulfilled the law. He willingly lays down his life in love to go to the cross 
listen, in order to switch places with you. So that your sin nature that you receive from Adam now gets put on him. Atonement. He's treated for what I've done wrong. And then here's this trade. I get his righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that, our, so that we, for his, his work, we can become rich. His, his poverty is our riches. That's what he did. That's the work of the cross, this Savior. But the key thing here is not only that he died, isn't the good news that he also rose? Asserting, I am who I say I am. That, this, is where, this is where you got to just kind of throw your hands up and go, he's not just a good teacher. I mean, history shows me he rose. What was that all about? Conquering death. Paying for sin, and then resurrection, payment accepted. It's cleared. It's gone through. And then I love the best part of the story is that Jesus, this is so cool, Jesus takes a 40-day victory lap on earth. <laughs> He's like, I did it. No, he doesn't do that. But like 40 days, we forget that. And then the Bible tells us that he ascends to the right hand of the Father, the Savior. So the, the intro question I asked was this, who was Jesus? But as Christians, we believe that's technically not the right question. The question is, who is Jesus? You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that in heaven there are these angels worshiping Jesus, and all day long, day and night, never ceasing, they say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You see, he has ascended to the right hand of God. Right now, Jesus is seated on the throne of heaven, ruling and reigning over everything. He has provided for your sin, and he's calling you to trust in him for who he is. Trust in him as your Messiah. Trust in him as your Savior. Trust in him as your prophet, your priest, your king. The Bible tells us that we have this great opportunity right now. If you are under the sound of my voice, God has you alive to trust in Jesus right now. He's provided his son for you. And Jesus goes on to say in this chapter that not only is that a great deal, but you owe him your whole life. He's king and Lord. I mean, whether or not you make Jesus king doesn't change the fact that he is. The Bible says that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess not their idea about who we think Jesus was, but who he was in truth. He's Lord. Every knee is going to bow. The question is, in what way is your knee going to bow? Will you bow willingly in response to this incredible love given to us through Jesus? Or will you bow under the weight of his glory that will force your knee to the ground? See, the scriptures, as I bring the band out to close, the scriptures teach this, that Jesus Christ is the soon coming king of the universe. He's coming back. As he ascended to the right hand of God, the angels looked at the disciples, and they said, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he's so going to come in like manner, just as you saw him go. Just as he went, so is he going to come. My prayer for us today is that we would be a people that trust in the Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.